Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and by your Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the word of the Lord. So if you have a copy of God's word, you can open it to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word, and as you promise, your word will not return void. I pray that this psalm that we would see in the light of the Old Testament promises you made and the New Testament fulfillments that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I pray that Christ would be glorified not only through the preaching, but in our hearts as we hear it and receive it, and that the Holy Spirit would have his way with us and convince us, Lord, of the glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, the glorious truths that are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Lord, that we would rejoice in him, that the truth, that everything that we need to be reconciled and redeemed, we find in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in your word, and I pray it in Christ's name, amen. Many, many times we read the Psalms devotionally, and we can do so, we, we a lot of us Probably all of us in this room read the Psalms devotionally, and we can open up a Psalm, read through the Psalms, and we do it devotionally because we can recognize truths in the Psalms about God that comfort us. 
This, this morning, I want us to do more. I want us to look at Psalm 2 in the light of the historical context. And so before we look at the structure, before I explain the structure of Psalm 2, I want us to understand the Old Testament truths that undergird this psalm. And I want us to understand the New Testament context, which clarifies the messianic understanding and fulfillment of this psalm that has been revealed to us in the New Testament. One of the things that we need to understand is that Psalm 2 would ref is reflecting the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was that God would give Abraham the land of Canaan, that God would give Abraham a multitude of fleshly offspring, and then thirdly, that Abraham would give uh, through the offspring of Abraham would come the promised seed the promised seed that goes all the way back to Genesis 3 that's promised to Adam and Eve, the promised seed that would come as the promise was given to Abraham. And that king, that seed when he comes would bless the nations. Also reflected in Psalm 2 is the Davidic covenant and obviously both covenants are tied together. These covenants would have been etched in the Hebrew mind. The Davidic covenant was a promise from God that God would be a father to David and David would be a son to God. And we see that reflected in 2 Samuel 7, especially verse 14, where God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The promises of the Davidic covenant or the Davidic covenant was not fulfilled in any a human Davidic king of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, as you read through the Old Testament, you will see that the, their history was a history of rebellion against God, which led to the end of the monarchy, the destruction of the temple, and the Babylonian exile. With the destruction of the monarchy and the exile to Babylon, the fulfillment of those promises looked bleak. However, the hope of those promises were kept alive and they are clearly applied to Jesus Christ, who is, according to the New Testament, the true Davidic king. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3, the promised seed to Adam and Eve. He is the fulfillment of the promised one who would come and bless the nations in the Abrahamic covenant. He is the true divine son, the obedient servant, the vine to God that bears fruit. He is the true divine son through whom God will rule the world. In Matthew 3:17, you'll remember this. It says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is... We can, we can, you probably, and I have, we, we can pass over that, the baptism of Jesus and, and just think that it's kind of like our baptism, but it's much more. This is not just some scene where God is just stating something about Jesus. This is the inauguration of a king, the king. And God declares it, and then better than oil anointing Jesus, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so in, in Matthew 3.17, we see this inauguration that he's the king. 
He's the king that is the beloved son, the king's son that we see here in Psalm 2. And as was read earlier, we see the fulfillment of Psalm 2 taught through the opposition to Jesus, the divinely anointed son of God by the rulers and the nations in Acts 4:23 through 28. And as we read, what the apostles are declaring is that what just happened to Jesus was the fulfillment, the true fulfillment of Psalm 2. When they say in Acts 4.23, I want to read it again, when they were released, John and Jane, or Peter and, and John, I believe, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then this is what's quoted, Psalm 2, and this is what they're saying. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. This is, this is what God was talking about, the ultimate fulfillment, who through the mouth of our father David and by, your, by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're quoting here Psalm 2 and then they say this is the fulfillment of it. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So this psalm, Psalm 2, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of Christ and blessedness for all those who find refuge in, in, refuge in Jesus, the King's Son. Psalm 2 is quoted more than a few times in the New Testament and it is alluded to even more. And so I, with, with that contextual understanding of the covenants that are undergirding this psalm and then the New Testament context that explains the fulfillment, I want us to look at the structure of the psalm. The structure of the psalm is building to its climax in verse 6 and 7, and we'll, we'll get to that. But the climax of, this, of Psalm 2, the climax is in verse 6 and 7. In verse 1 and 3, you see the psalmist who is attributed to King David is making an observation of the nations. He's observing the nation's behavior and what the nations say. And then in verse 4 through 6, the psalmist is giving us insight as if he's overhearing a conversation or a response from God to the nations. As I said, verse 6 and 7 is the climactic, unshakable truth of the psalm. And then verse 7 through 9 is the king's son revealing the covenant between the Godhead. And verse 10 and 12 is the psalmist responding to what he overheard from the nations with a plea. So the first thing I want us to look at is this, this first stanza, if you will, which is verses 1 through 3. And what we see is the psalmist uh, telling us as if he's overhearing a conversation. He's making an observation, and here's the thing, it's a perplexing observation. King David is perplexed by what he hears. 
He's, he's perplexed. Let me, let me read it. it. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the psalmist overhears the nations. And what the nations are doing is they're trying to, what? Suppress the truth of, of God and unrighteousness, Romans 1 says. They're trying to, to cast away God's rule and his law over them. And the psalmist is perplexed by this. Why would people plot against God is what the psalmist is saying. This is a behavior observed throughout Scripture and the history of mankind. It is a universal truth we see explicitly defined in Romans 1. Why do the kings and rulers scheme with one another against God? They plan to reject God and his king's authority. They seek to cut off all connection with them. And so the, the psalmist is perplexed. And so I want us to ask this question, why is the psalmist perplexed? I mean, I think we've lost our ability to be perplexed at the culture rejecting God, but not the psalmist. Well, let's think about what was foundational to the mind of an Israelite. And I think we'll get a clue of why the psalmist is perplexed. Genesis 22, 17 and 18 is part of a, the revealing of the Abrahamic covenant. And it says, I will surely bless you, God. This is God speaking. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And, and listen to this. And in, verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so the psalmist is perplexed because he's asking the question, why would you rage against a God who's promised to bless you? Why would you rage against God who's overflowing and abounding in grace and mercy and blessing and benevolence and long-suffering? Why would you scheme against him rather than rejoice in him? Amen? Why are you resisting God when he has promised to bless you? Why, why are you running from him rather than running to him? And really, isn't this a gospel question? Isn't this a gospel call? Are, are, are you, are we, have we lost our ability to be perplexed by someone rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think, I think we do. I think we do lose our ability to be perplexed. But if we're thinking about the gospel and the beauty of it, we should be perplexed every time. Anytime someone rejects Jesus, why would they do so when he promises blessings? He promises to bless you, to keep you, that he has good plans for you. 
Why would you rage against Christ when his blessings are extended to you? Why would you resist Christ when he is overflowing with grace towards sinners? He said that I've come to seek and to save what? Sinners. Psalm 2 is a gospel psalm, and the psalmist starts out by being perplexed at why the nations and the peoples would plot against God and reject God rather than running to God. He's a God that that cannot tell a lie, and he's promised to bless the nations, and you don't want those blessings. You don't want him to turn his face to you and shine upon you. So the psalmist is perplexed, and then the psalmist shifts from this perplexity of observation uh, towards the nations and the people who are plotting against God and do not submit to him to his observation of divine truth and God's response to the schemes of man. In verse 4 through 6, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The perplexity that the psalmist has, obviously God's sovereignty and omnipotence are are bearing weight in this psalm. But the the perplexity is more grounded in why you would not want to receive the blessings of God. Why would anyone not want to receive the blessings of God? And if you reject him, here's what you need to know, that the God who sits in heaven, in the heavens, he laughs at your schemes. Job learned And said this in chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do, speaking of God, all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so really the psalmist is uh, observing this truth, and let's think about that truth. The whole world can scheme and accumulate all the military power that's ever been created and all the technology that's ever been created, and they can come to battle against God, and guess what? God sits in the heavens and he laughs. The foolishness of rejecting God and denying God is rooted in thinking that because you don't honor God, And because you don't acknowledge God, that somehow that will release you from his lordship. And release you from what is due unto him. And here's what's due unto him. Every second of every day, what's due to God is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so it is lunacy to think that because you don't honor God and because you don't acknowledge God, somehow that releases you from his lordship. He who sits in the heavens laughs. When a person is delivered into a courtroom, 
Whether they acknowledged the law or the lawgiver is not what will matter. What will matter is whether or not the law finds you righteous or not. In God's response, he's laughing at the idea of him being dethroned. He's laughing at somehow his promise will not be fulfilled, that promise being that his king son will come with a new covenant that will bless the nations and that he will reign supreme, that his enemies will be made his footstool. It will happen. It has. It is. God laughs at the idea of him being dethroned, and God will have his day in his courtroom as judge. And we know what happens when God hits the scene and starts speaking. You remember the, what the Israelites did? They said, hey, Moses, you talk to him. We don't want to. When God revealed himself to Isaiah, what did Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I am undone. Paul tells us in Romans 3.19 that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. At the judgment, there will be no scheming. There will be no plotting against God. There will just be hands going over mouths. The whole world will be held accountable to God. He says, then God will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The promise to Adam and Eve that the seed would come, the promise to Abraham that there would be an offspring singular, as Paul says in Galatians, that would come with a new covenant and would bless the nations through that covenant will happen, has happened, and will come to its fullest fulfillment. The unshakable truth is that the Son of God is the universal King, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? which shows the climax of the psalm, which is the enthronement of the Son. You notice here in verse 6, as for me, this is the Father speaking, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then in verse 7 through 9, what you have is now there's an overhearing of the Son, the King's Son. He says, I'll tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In 6 and 7, we see the Father saying, listen, my ordained decree from all eternity past is that my Son will reign over all of creation. And the son says, yes, my father said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You will be the king. You remember John 17, I've glorified you, father. Now glorify with me, with you, with the glory that I had before the world began.
God's ultimate response to the nation's raging is the enthronement of his king's son, Jesus. His son is the king. His son sits on the eternal throne of, etern of an eternal kingdom. No one will unseat him. No one will escape facing him. He is the father's anointed king's son. He is the king of those who submit to him and love him. And he is the king of his enemies, whether they like it or not. Colossians 1.16 tells us that for by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so now the son is speaking and he's saying, here's the agreement, here's the covenant between the Godhead, and we're given this glimpse of the covenant of redemption, a covenant of the triune God. And if you've read the New Testament, you've, you've heard of this covenant. Paul says in Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. And listen to this, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Well, who was the promise made to if it was before the ages began? Because before the ages began, it was only God. In the beginning, God. And that's what we call the covenant of redemption a covenant within the triune God. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Christ is the king, anointed and ordained by his father to an eternal kingship, a kingship that has no end, nor does it have bounds, according to Daniel 7 and other scripture. All will submit to him. All things are his possession. He says in verse 8, ask of me. And, the, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It is a universal kingdom. And he will have dominion over all. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, listen to this. In light of Psalm 2 here, and Jesus came and said to them, you guys know this passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Matthew 28, 9, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice how the psalmist ends in light of the kingship of Christ, in light of the decree of God, in light of the sovereignty of God and his ordained plan. The psalmist makes a plea. 
And the plea is a response to what he observes about the nations in verse 1 through 3. So this response in the last three verses here is a response to the perplexity of their rejecting God in verses 1 through 3 based on the divine decree of verses 4 through 9. Verse 10 through 12 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. You know where, you know where wisdom begins? The Bible says it repl replete. It's replete. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a gospel call. What he's saying is, is hear the gracious promises from God to bless the nations. Hear the promises of God to bless the nations through his promised son. Run to him, not from him. Because he's abounding in mercy and grace and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be cast out. Open your hands and receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is the plea. We see in verse 10 through 12, three verses, each verse has two commands with the second one, the second command in verse 12 is rather implied. Verse 10 says, be wise, right? Not foolish. Don't be foolish all the way to your grave. If you come to God, he'll bless you infinitely, eternally. The blessings of God never end. Run to him. Don't be foolish because it's foolishness to plot against God. It's foolishness to look at God as some cosmic killjoy rather than a cosmic giving of giver of blessings. The second command in verse 10 is be warned. Be warned. Because the call, this gospel call to run to God and find mercy and grace will expire. It's not unending. And wrath will come to those who finish rejecting God. Be warned. Your chance for mercy and blessings and abundant joy will expire. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Respect. Be in, in other words, serve the law, the Lord, and because you're in awe of him, because you rejoice in him. We, we, don't, we don't serve the Lord out of, out of like earning. We're not trying to earn 
Grace resists earning. We serve the Lord with joy because of what we have in him, because of what he's bestowed upon us, because of what he's freely given us in Jesus Christ, everything that we need. All of our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And so we, we serve the Lord because we're filled with joy for all that we have in him. And when our joy is rooted in Jesus, we can rejoice because he's immutable. He does not change. And so our joy doesn't have to change and it doesn't have to shift according to circumstances. Come to him and serve him with this kind of joy. Know the joy of the Lord. Because God is gracious and overflowing with loving kindness. And then he says, rejoice Serve the Lord with, with fear, rejoice with trembling. God, God's power right now is dispensed in saving. Rejoice, run to him, not from him. Don't, don't cause your trembling to, to respond like the Israelites. No, we don't want to have anything to do with him, Moses. You talk to him. We'll be over here. Run to him. Find, find true joy and true pleasure and true happiness in him by running to him and experiencing him and growing in your knowledge of him because he is full of joy. Let your trembling cause you to worship rather than reject. Verse 12, kiss the son is the command, and kissing the son means submit to him. Submit to the son. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Kiss the son in all his beauty, in all his grace, in all his preserving of his people, in all of his interceding on behalf of his people, kiss the son. And then the last command there that I said was implied is blessed are all who take refuge in him. And let me just switch that around and it may be easier to see the implication. Take refuge in him and be blessed. Take refuge in him and be blessed. There is no refuge except for Jesus Christ. No true refuge, no real refuge except for in Jesus Christ. Let me close with giving a historical king who learned the lesson before it was too late and by the grace of God. In Daniel 4, 34 and 35, you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar and how he became arrogant and thought that everything that he was doing because of him and his power and his greatness and became prideful. He didn't give God credit. And God brought a curse on Nebuchadnezzar. And it says in verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion 
is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the God who reigns in the heavens and on earth. And there is a call to find refuge in him, to submit to him, to realize true joy and true happiness in Jesus Christ. It is the kingdom of Christ and only the kingdom of Christ that endures forever. All other kingdoms come to an end. And the call is to realize that God wants to bless you. And all you need to receive the blessings of God is to run to him and submit to his son, the king's son, who reigns supreme and for whom all of creation was created. Submit to him before it is everlastingly too late. Put your faith in him and rest. Rest in the infinite refuge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new covenant. The new covenant promises that are realized in Jesus Christ by the affecting work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gospel call to come to Jesus. Help us to be faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You've given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so, Lord, help us to go and to tell people about the blessings that they're missing out on because they're rejecting Jesus Christ, who has come for the purpose of blessing the nations. You are a good and faithful and benevolent and long-suffering and gracious and merciful and kind God. Help us to rest in you. Help others, the people that you've placed in our life, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and run to him and kiss him, submit to him, find their refuge in him. We pray this in the wonderful name of Christ our Savior. Amen.